Hello, I'm Tom Cross and welcome to Cross Examination. I'm a barrister in London working on cases with cultural, moral and ethical importance. In this podcast, expert panellists join me to take an independent look at the law surrounding one of these issues. Today, I examine the law on free speech at UK universities. Some say it's under threat. Others say allegations of cancellation and chilling effect are overblown. But it is rarely out of the news, with some seeing the issue as a bellwether for a wider culture war over what it may mean to take or give offence. In 2021, following some high-profile cases, the government introduced legislation into Parliament which aims to strengthen the enforceability of free speech rights, and the bill became law on the 11th of May this year, 2023. But what, if any, change will it make for speakers, others at universities, and the lawyers acting on all sides? Cross-examining with me today are, as ever, two of the country's leading lawyers in the field. Samita Jamda is a partner and head of education at Shakespeare Martineau and advises universities, colleges and independent providers about their compliance with free speech and academic freedom duties. She's also involved in a sector group looking to produce practical guidance on compliance with the new Act. James Murray is a senior lawyer at a leading London law firm and a research fellow at the University of Buckingham and specialises in employment law, academic freedom and free speech on campus. He advises major higher education institutions and prominent academics and writes and speaks widely on both international and UK free speech law. Welcome to you both. I suppose that within this complicated picture, there are broadly two types of case with which lawyers may be concerned here. One type of case is where you have a situation where students or indeed staff are afraid about expressing their true views on some topic perhaps a controversial social issue, in case they're accused of wrongdoing, harassment, harm of some sort. Another case might be staff or external speakers being so-called no-platformed or de-platformed after they've initially been invited, often by decisions of students or student bodies, but again on the basis that the expression of their views would cause harm. I want to start by looking at the framework as it has been until very recently. And there was a piece of legislation in 1986 which imposed a duty on universities. Should we start with that, Samita? What did that say? That was a duty on uh, the individuals involved in governing universities and running them to take such steps as are reasonably practicable to ensure that freedom of speech within the law is secured for members, students and employers of the institution and for visiting speakers. It's, as you say, quite an old duty, but uh, not one that's been litigated terribly often. So to take reasonably practicable steps to secure freedom of speech within the law, what, James, does that concept of freedom of speech within the law, what did that actually mean? As Smeeta rightly says, there's been a real dearth of, of case law around this piece of law. So we haven't had much clarity in the past as to what any of those elements of, of that test means. Within the law, there's a few things we can say for certain would fall outside of it. So anything that contravenes the criminal law. But then we have more nuanced issues, such as whether speech is contrary to the Equality Act. You mentioned in the introduction there, harassment contrary to the harassment provisions of the Equality Act. And that interaction is, is actually quite a nuanced one. And it can be quite difficult for universities to work out whether something actually does amount to harassment. Not only do you have a relatively narrow application of the Equality Act in certain cases, so student-on-student -student speech doesn't necessarily breach it, 
but also you would have to show that something is objectively amounting to harassment. And so that's a very complicated interaction because you have all this case law, which is protecting free speech, particularly academic free speech, which would suggest it's very hard to show in the circumstances that the speech in question does amount to harassment. So, for example, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, in, in their guidance, gave an example of, well, if you turn up to a lecture and kind of go intending to be harassed, knowing what they're going to be talking about, that's probably unlikely to amount to harassment. So freedom of speech within the law complicated, as James says, Smita, fundamentally because freedom of speech is not an absolute right or value. It's something that has to be balanced against countervailing interests that the university might have. And I think that is becoming uh, an increasingly problematic judgment. I think there has been some useful clarification from the Equality and Human Rights Commission to say that in matters of academic uh, discussion and debate, if you're debating matters of public interest, then actually the balance tends to tip into supporting freedom of speech and academic freedom. But there is always a line to be drawn. And I think one of the real challenges in this case is that people will probably draw that line slightly differently. And that, I think, is where the real challenge for universities is. You know, where do they step in and where do they step back and say, actually, this is just a lawful exercise of controversial but perfectly valid free speech or academic freedom? All right. So you've got this overall overarching duty on the university. It's widely expressed. It's subject to balance. There's also, I suppose, employment rights. James, when would they apply? So you'd be looking at the unfair dismissal provisions. An academic is dismissed for saying that's something that the university considers beyond the pale. You might also be looking at the Equality Act provisions. So there's been certain high profile cases where what the academic has said has ended up amounting to protected philosophical beliefs. And just to explain the basic point that unfair dismissal applies to employees, but Equality Act protection can apply to a wider class of person called worker, which includes employees, but also includes people who do work under a broader type of contract. Precisely, but it wouldn't necessarily be applying to, to visiting speakers because they wouldn't be employees or workers of the organisation or to students necessarily, unless they fall within separate provisions of the Equality Act. But those elements of law, I think, tend to be modified as well by the university's obligations as a public body under the Human Rights Act, the duty to act compatibly with the European Convention, in particular Article 10, which would protect freedom of expression. And what the courts have said is that there's this concept of academic free expression, which pertains in particular to academics and protects their research and discussion of their research as well. So that's going to be modulating the kind of standard employment law principles and Equality Act principles to make it harder to dismiss academics who have legitimately expressed their academic freedom. All right, so the human right to freedom of expression under Article 10 of the European Convention needing to be considered alongside the general duty on the part of universities in Section 43 of the Act and also, James, as you're explaining in employment tribunal cases. You're both very experienced lawyers in this area. To what extent were these different sets of obligations on universities and rights on the part of people who avail themselves of them? To what extent were these rights being exercised in practice? For, I'd say, the first 10, 15 years of my professional life, hardly at all. 
you'd get the odd case of a speaker not being allowed. Increasingly, you're starting to see more awareness of these rights. And I think partly because of the sort of culture war that you alluded to, more and more people wanting to assert their rights. So for students, which is really where I get most involved, if I'm not involved in the governance side of it, they are bringing claims based on uh, things like their protected beliefs. They are complaining if during an academic discussion they feel they weren't allowed to speak. On the other hand, you've got other students who are arguing that views expressed by them um, have caused them distress and harm. So it's becoming a much more common feature of both internal complaints and a small number of cases going to court. The final area that I'm seeing it more is through the OFS. There are existing public interest governance principles with which universities have to comply, include academic freedom and freedom of speech. And they are starting to get more involved where they feel reports in the media have suggested that, in fact, freedom of speech has not been respected or academic freedom. We'll come on in a moment to look at the change that the law is going to make to the role of the OFS. But James, just before we do that, we've looked at the general statutory duty on universities. We've looked at the possibility of employment tribunal claims. There'd be a wider set of considerations for somebody looking to use those laws to vindicate their rights that would come into play and presumably feed into whether or not they took action. I think that's absolutely right, particularly in terms of the judicial review under the 1986 Act duty. Judicial review would be a process by which you ask the court to look at the decision of a public body and essentially ask them to make it again because they've made that decision in some sort of way that was unlawful. And it would be a way of holding the university to its duty under Section 43 that we've explained. Precisely. The difficulty with that really is a practical one more than anything. The cost regime associated with bringing that kind of claim are quite risky for individuals and particularly individual academics. They could be exposed to having to pay the university's costs if they lose. On the occasion where I've mooted that kind of claim with my clients, they're almost very quickly put off (laughs) when we start talking about adverse cost orders. In the employment tribunal, that's not really an issue. It's generally much more favourable towards claimants because of the, the cost regime. That's the forum where I'm making those kind of arguments on behalf of clients much more frequently at the moment. But actually at this stage, uh, and I think this feeds into to Smita's point about these issues were not really coming up that frequently until quite recently, none of those cases have actually got through to the employment tribunal stage yet. So we don't actually have any judgments, although I am aware of, of some which will mean that there will be in the near future judgments which will help guide us on these kind of principles. All right, so we've got this new law now which came in on the 11th of May and it's made a number of changes, some bigger than others. First of all, there's a very similar duty. They're not quite the same as the duty that was in Section 43 of the 1986 Act. What's the difference? So there are some quite detailed differences, things like there is now a duty to have regard to the particular importance of freedom of speech. Academic freedom is now protected, but as a subset of freedom of speech, which, given what James said around the European case law, is quite interesting. For me, one of the the big new changes is around the new duty to promote freedom of speech, which I think will shift it from being a reactive duty to a much more proactive one. And we can maybe talk about what that might mean. So this is a new duty in addition to, if you like, the successor to Section 43. Yeah, absolutely. You could argue there was some element of it within Section 43, but it was never uh, interpreted like that. Um, I think the extension of the duties to students' unions is going to be quite an interesting new development. The main changes are around uh, the ease of enforcement of these new rights, and there are various new ways of, of doing that. 
So this is predominantly an act which is concerned about how people go about protecting their rights to free speech. And changes have been made, as you alluded to earlier, to the role of the Office for Students, the OFS. James, just outline for us in simple terms what the new role of the OFS will be under this new law. Essentially, universities will, as part of their conditions of registration, have to comply with these duties and the OFS will monitor that. And to do that, the new position of Director of Free Speech and Academic Freedom has been introduced, uh, which is Professor Arif Ahmed. And he will be in charge of monitoring those free speech functions of the OFS, but also be in charge of the new complaints scheme, which, as Smita rightly said, is one of the new mechanisms for enforcement of these new and kind of amended duties. So if I'm, for example, a student, whereas under the old law, I might have to think about and might be dissuaded from taking out a judicial review for the reasons that you explained, And while I might not have any employment rights, almost certainly won't have any employment rights against the university because it's not my employer, I might be able under this new law to take a complaint to the OFS, for example, that their duty to take reasonable steps to protect free speech is being breached. And the OFS would look at that as part of a new complaint scheme. That's precisely right. And as far as we can tell at the moment, and we don't have precise details yet on the nature of the scheme, it will be quite similar to the existing complaint scheme for students, the Office for the Independent Adjudicator. I'm sure there will be differences due course, but the the mechanism which establishes it is, is very similar. So that's the complaint scheme. Then there's a final important part of the Act that we should mention, Samita, a new, what the lawyers call tort, in other words, a new wrong that the statute says you can't commit. What is it? So this is a new right for people who feel that their, their rights have been infringed to go to court to bring a claim for an injunction or for damages for any losses they've suffered, including non-pecuniary losses, which is meaning things like damage to reputation, injury to feelings, those sorts of things, rather than financial losses. The way that the uh, legislation is drafted, you can only go to court for a claim for compensation if you've been through the university's internal complaints procedure first and also gone to the OFS. So it could be some time uh, before you get to court. That is not the case if you're applying for an injunction. You can go straight to court if you're applying for an injunction. So you can only go to court to sue on the tort if you've first been to the OFS, or I think, alternatively, the OIA that James mentioned. Is that right? That is still unclear because the way the legislation is drafted, the OFS will be able to hear complaints from students, but the OIA could also potentially hear complaints from students under its broader complaint scheme. I think we will need to see some clarity around whether they are going to be pushed in one direction or the other. And if I'm a student or someone else who's got a right to go to the OFS or a right to go to the OIA under complaint schemes, or indeed want to sue under the tort, The fact that I can do those things might mean I can't judicially review if I wanted to, because it's a principle of judicial review that it can only be used as a remedy of last resort. I think that's right. What's interesting about both the complaint scheme and the statutory tort is whether we'll actually see much use of them by employees. I think we'll see relatively limited uptake of the tort in particular by by employees. I think they will still prefer going to the employment tribunal instead, because as we talked about earlier, it's safer, really. You're not exposed to the cost risks of the university if you, uh, as you would be if you went to court under the statutory tort. So I think you know, the tort may be 
to some extent a little bit of a red herring, particularly over time. I think we'll see a few big cases early on, but ultimately the uptake will be relatively limited, is, is my prediction before we have any details about <laughs> how any of this works. Well, we've explained the enhancements to protections for free speech based on the government's view that such enhancements are necessary. I spoke to David Isaac, formerly the chair of Stonewall and the Equality and Human Rights Commission, and now the head of Worcester College at Oxford University, who had a different take on the extent of any free speech problem and the use of law to deal with it. I'm David Isaac. I'm the provost of Worcester College, Oxford. And I also chair the court of the University of the Arts in London. As somebody who works in the higher education field, I don't see a lot of cancelling of discussion or a lot of anxiety. Students feel very able, I think, to express their views. I don't recognise the sort of extreme chilling effect that lots of people describe And I always refer to a recent OFS student survey of 3,000 final year students where OFS reported that nine out of 10 of the students that they got responses from said that they felt able to express their opinions and beliefs. It was Freshers Week here in Oxford and I did a number of induction sessions with our new students and freedom of speech was one of the topics that we discussed and everyone in the room from a survey that we took felt that there should be robust debate and there shouldn't be any topics that were out of bounds. So I approach it on the basis that our students are more resilient and more robust than some people would portray. Two things are happening There's a lot of self-censorship that perhaps goes on representing that, you know, one out of 10 group. Perhaps those with more socially conservative views are reluctant to express those views in certain circumstances. And then the second factor that I identify is that there are certain toxic debates in this country. The culture wars or wedge politics promulgated by certain parts of the media. And so that means that certain discussions, whether it's about the rights of the transgender community or the pros and cons of whether there should be conversion therapy for LGBT people, Freedom of speech was historically seen very much as a left-wing issue, whereas now it's become a right-wing issue as part of the anxiety that people on the right have about their views being silenced or cancelled. One needs to ensure that those views are heard without cancelling events. Do I believe that the debate should go ahead? Absolutely, I do, within the context of courteous debate where participants listen carefully to each other and within the law. I don't think in all cases that's happening at the moment. So to that extent, I think I'm a proponent of free speech. I'm not a proponent of the sort of free speech absolutism that some people advocate, which amounts to the Yabu sucks approach, shouting, refusing to listen. I don't believe that that's a constructive way to promulgate ideas. And that's not the sort of debate that encourages people who do feel unable to express their views to participate. And therefore, you have a deafening silence. And, and, and that's the opposite of the promulgation of free speech, in my view. 
As chair of Stonewall, I suppose I was leading the organisation at a time when there was huge support for the ideas and, and the human rights that we were promoting. And for part of the time, I was chair of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. But things have changed because of some of the disagreement about the hierarchy of rights in relation to transgender issues. In the context of free speech in universities, I worked with colleagues at the Commission to produce a guidance, which I think even now is really helpful, and perhaps for some of the reasons that I mentioned. The importance of guidance and giving clear examples of what universities can do to promote speech has informed my thinking and what I brought into work that I'm doing here with students at Oxford. So what we're doing at Oxford is curating the conditions in which difficult conversations can take place to a certain extent without imposing significant limitations. And the way in which we've approached it is to gather together a group of heads of Oxford colleges, academics, but most importantly, students. And through a series of workshops, we've focused on what sorts of things will encourage debate and we've turned them into a series of tips. So to give you an example, it's how a particular meeting is advertised, who's going to be chairing it, how much time speakers have, how the audience is involved, and the kind of language that is used, so active listening, so that we can actually focus on the issues in an environment where people consent to discussing the issue I don't want to say a safe environment, but within conditions which encourage them to participate in the debate rather than making them fearful that they're going to be attacked personally. Legislation in itself, I never thought was necessary. And I think the impact of that legislation will take quite a few years to become evident. I was quite critical of the bill. The amendments, I think, have improved it. But I think the reality will be the legislation comes in at a time when the culture wars have made this perhaps a more problematic issue in the minds of readers of certain newspapers than what's actually happening on the ground in universities. You know, we're still waiting for the OFS guidance to be published. We don't quite know what it's going to say. But as a lawyer, I would say, even if the guidance is published quite quickly, the mechanisms are blunt. So, you know, having to exhaust uh, internal complaints procedures and then involving OFS. I don't anticipate there'll be lots of injunctions because universities can't afford to spend lots of money on this and neither can students or academics. So a lot of this, I think, is uh, very performative. But the bill itself has resulted in increased awareness, which on its own will drive some change and is making universities have discussions that otherwise we wouldn't have had. Smeeta and James, let's think about where we are now as a result of this new legislation with Arif Ahmed in post and, and think about the future. In practice, what consequences do you think this new complaint scheme is going to have, either for individuals or for universities? I'm almost uh, 100% sure it will be used quite frequently. There are lots and lots of scenarios at the moment which people are seeking to advance and currently finding difficult, but that will give them a route through it. For universities, I think the main issues this is going to present is ensuring they've got the right decision-making internally to be able to review things quickly, which currently complaints procedures don't necessarily do. They can take several months, and I don't think this sort of issue 
is susceptible to that kind of lengthy process. I'd also put the challenge back to the Office for Students as well, because currently their decision making isn't as speedy as, as, as it might be in, in other areas. Is it going to be clear enough to students and others what their remedies are? I suspect that the OFS is going to expect universities to be quite clear about what the remedies are. So in a different area in relation to, for example, consumer protection, increasingly the OFS is saying universities should be advising students of their rights if things have gone wrong. So uh, I think they'll probably do something very similar when they issue guidance around compliance with the new registration conditions. It is the case that obviously not every student will necessarily understand their rights. I think there's a real risk of inequality here where perhaps the students who are most familiar with the systems perhaps have the money to take legal advice, find that it's easier to protect their rights rather than those who aren't in that position. And I think that's something the OFS has got to keep an eye on because it's not fair. Is this going to be used as another forum where the culture wars can be fought? I think so. The atmosphere on campus around these sorts of issues is, is quite febrile at the moment. And I think that will lend itself to a lot of complaints. I've seen in my own practice more and more of these issues coming up almost on a weekly basis now. And if you follow them in the media, there is seemingly a new controversy of some kind almost every week. So I think that will lead to a lot of work for the OFS, as Smita says, and you know, there's concern whether they'd have the capacity to deal with it efficiently. Much of the nature of the problem, or perhaps the alleged problem, is down to culture, isn't it? Much of the impetus that is said to be behind the need for further action, further legislation, is a desire to do something with culture change. Whether you like the direction that culture is going in or you don't like the direction that culture is going in. And I just wonder whether this is an example of an area which it is difficult inherently for the law to sort out. I'm not convinced that a complaint scheme was, was necessarily the best way to handle these kind of issues. I think there's two ways you could have gone about it, kind of getting buy-in at a grassroots level, winning hearts and minds around these issues and kind of coming to a position to soothe the kind of culture or issues that are, are generating this. You potentially also could have just had top-down imposition and clarity as to what the law is. I'm not saying that would have been a good option, but it would have been an option. This is something of a halfway house. We have to remember the complaint scheme can only make recommendations. They're not going to be binding on universities. And the government has envisaged recommendations such as reinstatement of controversial academics. It's difficult to imagine if there's a particularly controversial academic who's dismissed and a recommendation from the OFS to reinstate them, to see a university doing that rather than kind of fighting against what the OFS has recommended. Ditto with maybe large fines and things like that. The complaint scheme probably can't make any determinations as to legal obligations. So it will just be a prelude to a bigger fight in the courts, I think, without winning hearts and minds um, and potentially also being quite controversial in itself, the decisions that are made. I couldn't agree more. I think that what we have here is generally a good culture of free speech on campuses. There's lots of very vibrant debate happening. There are lots of incredibly challenging issues explored every day. We have, however, got a number of deeply contested societal issues which are problematic in terms of how they're discussed and debated on campus. And I think the idea that you can legislate that out of existence, those controversies, it's simply not the case. I think it also begs the question of what is the purpose of freedom of speech on, on a university campus as opposed to on Twitter or some other social media. And you would have to say it is surely towards arriving at some 
progress, some consensus, some some way forward in these issues. And again, establishing a complaint scheme or a mechanism for enforcement doesn't seem the best way to build that consensus to really progress these issues and arrive at some sort of resolution of them. What about this new tort, which received a lot of attention as it was going through? We've explained that you can't do the tort unless you've been through a complaints process first. Am I right that one of your concerns as the legislation went through was that from a university's perspective, it might expose it to vexatious complaints or frivolous complaints that it would have to deal with disproportionately? Do you think that this change has helped remedy that concern? I think it has helped. As well as the idea of frivolous or vexatious complaints, I think one of my anxieties was this is an area where there are some organisations with very deep pockets who would like nothing better than to pursue these types of cases. And for them, it is as much about establishing principles as about resolving the specific case that they have in front of them. So there was this risk that we would end up locked into lengthy litigation to establish certain principles rather than really to protect the rights of the individual, which might have been capable of being settled. James, is this tort actually going to be used? I think there will be probably limited number of cases. I expect most of the battles to be in the employment tribunal using this legislation in a slightly different way to say, well, it's strengthened my protection under the Employment Rights Act with respect to unfair dismissal, or it's strengthened my protection under the Equality Act. For example, one might say, you know, it's harder for you as the institution to say hyper-harass someone because of the way this law is interacting with the harassment provisions, for example. My suspicion is that those kind of cases will be will be much more frequent than a dismissed academic using the tort, for example. I mean, there's a whole host of kind of practical and technical challenges with that. It's not even clear to me that a dismissed academic could even use the tort to get dismissal-related losses because there's some case law that says, you know, you should use the tribunal for that. That's what it's there for. We can't cut across what Parliament has done in the past. I can't imagine many of my clients who are individual academics are going to take the risk of paying adverse cost orders in the High Court. I think there would be, as, as Smita said, a few funded cases early on, maybe test cases to kind of scope out the parameters. And then things will probably settle down um, and we'll see most of the cases in the tribunal, I think. We've been talking, I suppose, about the law's response to culture in, in a sense. But legal decision making, the law is itself influenced by culture. How do you think Professor Arif Ahmed is likely to steer the OFS's culture in decision making? I think this is a really interesting area because uh, one of the things that the OFS has been very keen in other areas of regulation to do is to say that it is not interested in process. It's not interested in what it describes as inputs. It's interested in outcomes. And that would tend to suggest that they are not simply going to give universities a very wide um, margin of discretion in how they deal with these cases. They are ultimately going to be quite hard-edged on, was this the right decision or the wrong decision? So that line we talked about earlier, they'll want to to, to come down on one side or the other rather than say, well, there's a big range of uh, responses you can make. So I think we will see some quite challenging decisions from the OFS. Subject, I think, to what James has said, which is they themselves might then be challenged. If you look at some of the more controversial cases we've had, you can see that a decision that this either was or was not a lawful exercise of freedom of speech is going to leave somebody very unhappy and then probably not going to let it lie. One of the possibilities is that people use on either side of perhaps a culture war debate a complaint to the OFS as a setup 
for a higher profile type of claim, namely a judicial review of the OFS's decision. OFS has to decide one way or the other. It can't bat it away, as it were, and decide not to make a decision. It has to take a position as to whether or not someone's rights have been infringed in relation to certain speech. And then the matter might need to go to the High Court to see whether or not the OFS has acted consistently with freedom of speech rights. I think that's right. And Professor Ahmad is well established in terms of his views being very pro-free speech and, and, and pro-academic freedom. There's an interpretation of all the relevant law, particularly the international law, which says that the protection for academic freedom and academic freedom of expression is extremely high and robust. And my prediction for the kind of guidance we're going to get would be reflecting that to a very significant extent. As Smita says, I think it will be steering providers to the end of the spectrum, which is kind of maximal protection for free speech and academic freedom. It's a case where a famous judge called Lord Hoffman says of the Human Rights Act that it wasn't supposed to introduce the rule of lawyers. It was supposed to bolster the rule of law. Do you think that this legislation is going to increase the role of lawyers, even if not their rule? <laughs> what, a, what an interesting question. Almost certainly, the, the OFS, for example, is not there to determine legal rights and obligations. When you have a framing around within the law, the law is going to come into it somehow. And so the traditional approach to student complaints or internal complaints procedures, which says this is not about the law, we don't need lawyers involved, you can start to see that slightly being eroded. And I do think the unfortunate thing that could result from this is that a huge amount of expense is spent on legal fees rather than on the fundamental cultural issues. And I think one of the things universities absolutely must do is get ahead of the cultural issues in the hope that that will then reduce the legal fees. Interestingly, it was quipped by one of the lords as the bill was passing that the only people who will be happy with this bill are the lawyers who have to advise on it. I see what he means by that in terms of there's so much additional kind of compliance complexity and so many grey areas in the framework of the bill that it will require a lot of advice to help universities kind of guide their way through it. So I think it will create a lot of work for the lawyers. Well, we will, as they say, have to wait and see. For the moment, Smita Chamda and James Murray, thank you very much for cross-examining with me today. Pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. We've reached the end of the podcast, but we'll be back soon and we'd love to know what you'd like us to examine next. Tell us what you're interested in or concerned about in the world of law by tweeting at crossexaminepod. Remember to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got time, we'd love a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word about cross-examination. Meanwhile, I've been Tom Cross, and until next time, goodbye. Cross-examination is written and presented by Tom Cross. The producer is Jelena Sofronievich.